Hello. Thanks again for listening to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. I didn't really know the works of the author Siri Hustvet. I'll be honest, I was looking at the list of authors coming to Town Hall and I was attracted by her name. First of all, Siri Hustvet. I thought she might be a Scandinavian novelist I didn't know much about. Then I started reading the information about her in the Town Hall brochure and started doing more research. Found out about her worldwide recognition as a writer and a scholar. Found out that she was born in Minnesota. Found out that besides writing, she also teaches. She lectures in psychiatry at a medical school. Husvet's work has been translated into more than 30 languages. Her first novel, The Blindfold, was published in 1992. Her 2014 novel, The Blazing World, was up for a Man Booker Prize. She's written a collection of essays, including Mysteries of the Rectangle and the recent A Woman Looking at Men Looking at Women, essays on art, sex, and the mind. Her latest novel is Memories of the Future, telling the story of a writer across four decades. The older writer encounters the younger writer's works and marvels at what she still remembers and what she has forgotten. Hi, uh, my name's Steve Sher. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm just fine, thanks. Is it cold where you are in this country? It's actually, the sun is shining brilliantly. Um, I've just been working so far this morning, so I haven't actually, but apparently it's rather bracing outside, but the (laughs) sun is shining, so. We're getting a bracing winter, all of us across the the country, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's been fairly bracing, but um, yeah, okay, we've had some snow here, but it hasn't been overwhelming, so... We're okay. Yeah. Ours, we got a lot, and then it melted. But we got quite a bit. Seattle doesn't usually get a lot of snow, but we got a lot. No, no, it's usually rain. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we have that, too. We gave us, we got both. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me this morning. I'm happy to do it. I read an interview. There are quite a few people who study your work as scholars study literature. Yes, I think there are four or five books on my work right now. Is that um, good? And, oh, yeah, I think so. I know some of them, um, not all of them. Uh, uh, but, you know, I'm very happy that people are interested in in writing about my work. And, you know, I have a Ph.D. myself, and half of my life is devoted to various forms of scholarship. So at the moment I'm working on a paper that I'm delivering at a conference in early June um, which is the Margaret Cavendish uh, 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 Society, and they are devoted to the work of the 17th century natural philosopher Margaret Cavendish, and they've asked me to give a keynote lecture. So, you know, this is all deeply part of my life. I'm also a lecturer in psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College, where I teach a seminar to psychiatric residents. Yeah. You didn't know this? So, no, I, yeah. I did. So anyway, I, I yeah, did. yeah, That's... yeah. Yeah, so uh, so it's not as if I feel distant and contemptuous of um, scholarly and academic work because I do it myself. <laughs> no, I uh, the the opposite really of distant and contemptuous. I just I wondered how it how it um how it um how it feels to be written about? Yeah, yeah. As a yeah, writer who yeah. writes about things that are about writing about things. 
Yeah, exactly. So, um, okay, I would say that my dominant feeling is one of, um, you know, feeling flattered and happy that someone cares enough to do it. Um, and, you know, every once in a while, if you, uh, you know, look at things, and you think, wow, <laughs> is, you know, is that what I was doing? You know, we don't always know. I'm not sure that writers are always the best judges of their own work or what's going on it, on in it. So sometimes um, scholars can tease out aspects um, that even the writer herself or himself is not aware of. Well, I could see just from reading the, the, I read a couple of your papers and reading some of your other works. I mean, I could see how that would be a major theme in your work, that writers don't always, narrators don't always, those of us living our lives yes, don't always exactly. know what's actually, uh, what we're accomplishing, yeah. what we're living through. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, there's, we are in many ways strangers to ourselves. In a, in a half an hour, I'm going to talk to another person who's coming to Town Hall, who's the uh, scientist Franz de Waal. And his, oh, my goodness. His, well, do, um, do you know yes, his work? that's a very prominent person. Oh, yes. And, and I was, in reading these two books together, I was sort of thinking about, um, well, self-awareness. Right. You know, it's a big, big problem in, in, in uh, both philosophy and neurobiology and zoology um, is the question of consciousness. Well, it seems right. that one way that DeWall is looking at it, and I guess this is, I, this is why I was thinking about it in relation to your work, too. He looks at it by, well, let's, since we can't go into the inner workings, because we can't see what's happening in a brain, well, someday we mm -hmm. will, but you know what I mean, um, that let's look at action and let's look at like what's logical about how people act in relation to yeah, so, each other. Right, right. Yeah, well, he interests me because I think he's very interested in, in the social reality of, of uh, you know, mammals and uh, that you, you really can't isolate one creature from another creature. And you are too. I am, indeed, yes. I go so far. I think you, you really cannot um, talk about a single brain without talking about at least two brains. What are you those know, that, two, what that, two brains? The, well, the two brains, for example, the fact that, you know, we are all, we all gestate inside another person and are born out of that person's body. And the brain then develops through social interaction, usually between mother and child or some caretaker and, and the infant. I mean, we know that this is, there's tons of scientific material on this. Um, it's called attachment studies. And not only in human life, but in all mammalian life, um, you know, we happen to be very, very slow growers, right? We have, um, um, we're born immature, and uh, it takes us a very long time to to develop much longer than most mammals. If you think about, if you've ever seen a cult born, I did once, it was remarkable, um, the cult stands up within a few minutes of birth and starts walking around. For human beings, it takes a year. That's a great difference. 
Yeah, and, you know, and the fact is that, you know, we die. I mean, that's how the Greeks used to kill unwanted babies. They just leave them out, exposure. <laughs> so um, that was an efficient way of just getting rid, rid of them um, because, you know, we die instantly. There's really no uh, way to survive at all. We are among the most helpless. We are the most helpless mammal. So, um, so we need social uh, we, in, in order to develop, in order to become a human being, you need these intimate social encounters, you know, from, well, immediately after birth. So, so I think that that is how our brains develop, and it may be uh, certainly part of the explanation for why human beings have such elaborate social forms and cultures and languages. You know, there are other animals that... Um, have, you know, very elaborate communication forms. You know, we can certainly talk about languages. And there are even birds that are of the same species that have different um, cultural habits depending, you know, on where they are in in the world. But we are the only creatures who have, you know, thousands of different languages. You know, I was reading one... an interesting point. Yeah. I was reading one of your... (laughs) one of the, one of these scientific papers um mm-hmm. uh philosophy matters in brain matters yes yeah and, uh, i your, gave that at the cleveland clinic yeah your conclusion being that the ethical treatment of patients requires a respect for their stories philosophy yeah. matters because it informs diagnosis i think it may be time for functional and organic to go the way of humors and be replaced by other more subtle <laughs> understandings of biological processes but yes how, how well before I get to how that works in fiction for you, how did that go over yeah. with some of those with some of those folks? It went over really well. I mean, actually, one of the uh, one of the people in my audience then um, has since become a friend, and it was um, first published in um, in a uh, in a journal called Seizure, uh, the European Journal of Epilepsy. That's, you know, one of my uh, uh, scientific publications. Um, So, you know, mostly pretty well. I mean, I think there are, you know, sometimes people who are uh, startled. Also, there are many scientists who do not bother much with thinking through the philosophical problems that are, at times, right underneath their research. Of course, the people who invite me to these conferences to lecture are usually on my side. <laughs> they read They're your work. interested in what I... Otherwise, they would obviously not invite me. But yes, I have run, to, run into some people who are, um, you know, who don't agree with me, and, you know, that's actually, in some way, one of the pleasures of, of intellectual life, you know, is that we don't all agree. But um, I pride myself on being able to defend my views uh, rather robustly. Did did I read that part of your interest in seizures and neurobiology is because you are affected by that? Yeah, well, it start. I mean, this is a long, I, I mean, it's been, oh my goodness, it's been decades I've been immersed in uh, psychiatry, neurology, and neuroscience, decades of of, you know, doing my own research. And I was, I actually was part of a discussion group um, that met at, uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital for a number of years. 
it was neuroscientists, psychiatrists, um, some robot people, various uh, uh, scientists interested in the brain. And um, so I've been doing this for a long time, but I did begin reading about uh, neurology quite early on in, in college, and it was because I suffered from migraine. It was much later after I'd been studying this material for a long time that I had sort of mysterious seizure-like uh, stuff happening to me. And I had been asked to give a lecture at Columbia Presbyterian uh, uh, Medical School in, you know, in the narrative medicine department, which is the department at Columbia. And I had this shocking shaking episode while I was giving a speech about my father and um, my dead father. And that became the shaking woman. But I was already deeply inside that material by the time I wrote that book. But yeah, I think my migraines, my auras, you know, a kind of neurological sensitivity was definitely part of my interest Have in you, all of this. Do those still plague you, the migraines? You know, much less, much, much less, but it's not its not completely finished. I have what I think of as sort of phases of vulnerability and uh, and pain, but I, I treat it with, well, what is just deep meditation. I learned it years ago, biofeedback. Now they have things like neurofeedback, but this was just, I was hooked up to electrodes and I learned to and, you know, speed, kind of get my circulation going and um, lower the temperature of my extremities. Um, and it worked. It yeah. eases the pain. It can be used for just about anything. I mean, I know asthmatics who use it, you know, for severe asthma especially. Um, and uh, it works. In the, in the best sense of the meaning of story, what's the story you tell yourself about this this condition that you have? Oh, well, um, the best story, I think, is actually in the essay that you mentioned. Um, I say that it's possible that had I not had these particular neurological uh, sensitivities, that I might not have become a writer, um, that I have come to recognize that these weaknesses are also a form of strength and that I actually wouldn't change it. So I think that's a pretty positive reading of, uh, of a particular kind of illness. Do you think that plays out in this book, that sort of notion? Well, I think it, this book is very much about time and I think one could say that my reading of migraine and my shaking episode uh, is certainly subject to a recontextualizing over time. In other words, when I was first, well, I had migraines since childhood, but they weren't diagnosed. And when I suffered from really severe episodes in my 20s, I then uh, did not feel that there was anything good about this at all. <laughs> but 
but I, you know, as the years have passed, I've learned to understand that it's not something I fight, but it's something that I accept as part of me. You know, it's it's not an alien force; it's part of uh, who I am, and uh, that's I think been uh, extremely helpful. So, in terms of the book, I think one could say that there are essentially two narrators. They happen to be the same person, but at different times of life. So there's the young narrator and her texts, and then there's the older narrator who's thinking about those earlier texts, those earlier stories, and recontextualizing them from her much later point of view. Um, It's a form of you know, memory and imagination uh, connected to that year, a single year of this person's life. Say, by the way, how how, uh, reliable should I take these narrators? (laughs) Well, I think this is part of the story. Um, If you, very early in the book, the narrator declares, the older narrator declares that she's writing a memoir. And then she says, but if you're one of those readers, you know, who likes memoirs, you know, extremely detailed memoirs that include descriptions of, uh, you know, potatoes and the food on, on a plate, then I would like to say to you that those authors, who describe their hash browns 30 years later are not to be trusted. <laughs> so if memory is, uh, is, is in fact um, a shifting business. We do not take out a fixed memory from our brains. Every time um, we retrieve a memory, it is subject to change. So you can't go back and find the true, if you will, or real memory. Uh, I think this is important so that the imagination is always shaping our memories as well. They too are shot through with fictions. I think even uh, the the older narrator alludes to that or says something about that towards the end of the book about her own um, memory, or at least her own, uh, the story that she's wrapping up. Absolutely. I I mean, part of the point of the book, if you will, the philosophical point of the book is that, uh, you know, despite the fact that the culture likes to make this hard and fast division between memory and imagination, it does not, in fact, exist. And the, uh, if you will, the therapeutic side of the imagination for me is very interesting as well, because um, the young narrator goes through some painful experiences, and those ex- those experiences of vulnerability and being hurt uh, are aided by her imagination. So one of the important characters in the book is the Baroness, Elsa von Freytag, Loringhoven, the Dada uh, poet and, and artist who was a ferocious uh, presence in her own day and who she names this uh, knife after. So the Baroness becomes also a knife. 
And the knife is a form of self-protection, but it's also a way of expressing rage that she's unable to express uh, directly in words. Uh, So that is a kind of imaginative movement uh, for the narrator. And the bareness finally becomes a, a kind of image of flight at the very end of the book. She is... She literally, <laughs> or figuratively, however you want to read it, uh, flies, takes off. She is the image of, of freedom for the narrator. An image you draw. An image I draw. Or I always think of it, that little person there, um, the little naked person with the knife as, a, um, as possibly the reader. Because if you remember... At the end of the book, there's been a lot of uh, talk about keys and, um, you know, knives. And and so the keys turn out to be the keys of the typewriter or the computer keys. And then they are handed over to the reader. To do what we do with story as story becomes uh, integrated in our lives. To integrate one story becomes another. And um, also that these stories that we sometimes denigrate as merely imaginary or merely fiction um, are, in fact, uh, ways of reconfiguring the self for the better. Did literature always do that for you, the the literature that you read uh, when you were a child? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that has never changed I can think of really important books, uh, perhaps first, the most astounding work I read as a child was Alice in Wonderland. I was also captivated by the pictures. When I was 11, my mother, my Norwegian mother, but who uh, loved uh, English literature, gave me two small books. She gave me a selected uh, small book of Emily Dickinson's poems, and she gave me a selected Blake, William Blake. And I read those poems over and over and over again and felt absolutely transported. Now, especially the Dickinson, Dickinson remains a difficult poet. Um, So at 11, I couldn't have possibly uh, been reading those poems by telling myself exactly what they meant. But there was so much feeling and presence and mystery and, uh, I don't know, force in those poems that I had a strong feeling that, uh, you know, there was just nothing like that. And later, when I was a bit older, when I was 13, I read and read and read and read, but the books that captivated me the most then were David Copperfield by Charles Dickens, I read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, I read um, Jane Eyre uh, by Charlotte Bronte. Those books uh, really pinned me to the wall, and... uh, and that's when I decided to become a writer. 
classic uh, novels of the canon, phrase you used a couple of times. They were. You know, again, it was my mother who was giving me these books. She was handing me one after the other, um, and it those books were all read during the same summer. I think I read, you know, 20 or 30 books. I just never stopped reading. It was in Reykjavik, Iceland. My father, a professor, was studying the sagas, and I just... I couldn't sleep, by the way. It was light all night long, so I just kept reading. <laughs> when you're writing, uh, and, and you know, your writing also talks about the canon, who gets left out, the patriarchy, violence of patriarchy. Uh, absolutely. So when you're writing your books, do you see them as fitting into the, uh, a canon, a new canon? Well, canons change, you know. This is probably a good thing, um, and... I think it's quite clear, at least to many people, that as valuable as many works are, for example, in the English canon, I, I happen to be a great fan of of Milton, um, who has been left out at times in, in uh, new uh, curriculum. I always feel a little bad about that. So, you know, I don't dump on uh, the great writers that have been included in the canon, but I, I do feel very strongly that um, not only in literature, but certainly in the history of art uh, in general, that uh, great women and, you know, as we, we say now, people of color to embrace all those who were um, not included uh, in the canon need to have a voice. So reshuffling these canons is, is probably a good thing, and I think that there one hopes in a way that the, that the reshuffling will just go on and on. And as I said about memory, you know, memory changes in the present. So what was truly valuable in the context of one age may not be as valuable in the context of another. But uh, we're constantly changing uh, as people. And sometimes there are corrective moves, you know, that can become a little extreme. But since the 1970s, feminist scholarship has really rehabilitated and resurrected a number of important figures in philosophy, literature, and the history of art. So I think that's a good thing. You mentioned the Baroness, one of the other writers that that you said you affected you deeply is as Nightwood and Juna Barnes. Now a writer I've yeah. never heard of, but you see there you are. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful book. I, I've read it four times and I remember I read it as a young woman when I was in graduate school at Columbia. I just loved the book. And then re a number of years later, um, maybe 15 years later, I thought, geez, you know, who knows? Maybe this isn't such a good book. <laughs> and I read it again. And I thought it was really wonderful again. I've actually read it four times now. I think it's a truly extraordinary book. Uh, it did, you know, it it isn't lost, actually. Uh, T.S. Eliot wrote the preface for it, for Faber and Faber, uh, the publisher in England, um, that did it. So, you know, he gave it a kind of, kind of imprimatur of importance, and she continues to be mentioned, but I think the novel is better than its reputation. An artist who struggled as well. 
Yeah, she was a really uh, a popular journalist, however. She wrote a lot of strong journalism. She interviewed James Joyce, for example, made a beautiful drawing of him. Uh, uh, she was not a... Uh, not unsuccessful, but she ended up as a recluse uh, in New York City, living on Patchen Place for years and years, and not writing very much. So, um, yes, she kind of she became a, a stymied character. But as a young woman, she was a very successful journalist and in much demand from New York papers. Uh, who was living across the street from her? E. E. Cummings. That would, that story I think E.E. E. Cummings lived. I think E.E. E. Cummings lived on Patchett Place. There were a number of important writers who lived there. John Reed uh, lived there. Now I don't know, you know, what the timing is of all this because she was there quite late. But there were a number of famous writers right there in that little cul-de-sac in New York City. I I, I think I read a story that said E.E. E. Cummings shouting out the window every once in a while, over across to her window. Asking if she was all right or something. Oh yes, that's right. Some I I I have read this too. Juna, are you still there? Or that's something right. like that. That's right. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's yeah. it's uh it's struck me a lot lately how uh, many people, not just writers, right, but across this the history are left out of the history, and uh, how how critical it is to see them. Return. I mean, how how eye opening it is to see them return uh, to yes. the story. And also, I think it's interesting to uh, discover why they return. This happens in science quite a bit too. Um, I am very interested in this particular period um, of science in Germany, and uh, there's a, a figure named Hermann von Helmholtz, uh, uh, and he is now really has been resurrected in part because there are certain problems in neurobiology that an idea he had of unconscious inference have been used again. Um, so he's been resurrected in ways that, um, that are kind of surprising. Uh, again, I think someone like Margaret Cavendish, who I was talking about earlier, 17th century natural philosopher and writer, uh, has come back in philosophy in part because the questions that are being asked about the mind-body problem in philosophy now are very similar to the ones asked in the 17th century, and Margaret Cavendish had original answers to that very question, the mind-body problem. So, you know, we find our grandparents, too. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we go back, we discover works of interest um, that are surprisingly timely, but of course the act of discovery um, to some degree depends on our needs, and those are needs of the moment. You mentioned Emily Dickinson being difficult, and, um, and, and you talk about creativity and how things can bubble up. You also, uh, this other essay, I had a good time finding all these essays because I thought, my gosh, look at all oh, the good. different ways. So The Pleasure of Bewilderment. Um, All right. <clears throat> I don't know that I've never loved a painting I can master completely. My love requires a sense that something has escaped me, and 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 you mentioned that Emily Dickinson was a difficult poet, and and mm -hmm. there are many artists that are difficult. But is the difficulty? Mm -hmm. And and I would say that there are people and that read your works and also say I better read this a second time or a third time. 
to understand it. <laughs> if I'm lucky. <laughs> but, yeah. But but there is in that um what was the other thing I think you read that you 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 wanted uh, people to to come away uh, uh unsettled, challenged, teased. Uh yes. you know, break out our our paradigms. All these sort of thinkers all the, that you mentioned, all these writers and yourself are trying to do that. That's sort of opposed to what a lot of art hands us or maybe culture hands us today, which are Easy answers. I, I, yeah, I think you're really right. Uh, you have just, you know, put the nail in its proper spot. Uh, I am not interested in work that is easy for me to understand. I, I just am not interested in it. I'm interested in exactly that which escapes me, and which may, by the way, always escape me. But which asks me to think in different ways, to think again. And that makes me feel more alive in an important way. I, I, I just, that, that is it, whether it's looking at painting, reading novels, reading science, reading philosophy, I am hell-bent, if you will, on reconfiguring my own thoughts through this other work. I always want to be in dialogue with, um, you know, other minds, if you will. And that's so exciting to me. And you're right. The culture is feeding us very simple answers to, uh, you know, the immense complexity of what it means to be a human being. And uh, I find those ready-made cliches really dull <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know um all right here a, a last question that takes you back to the this the psychiatry seminar that you teach so i, I teach a mm -hmm. i teach an interviewing class through at the uw and and, uh -huh. it's, and it's different uh, approaches to this tool the interview and one of them is uh, medical and i right. and i talk to doctors about what they learn and how they approach getting stories from people who are who right. so they better understand them of course you you write um every illness has a story and that story belongs to a person who has the illness moreover the way a sick person understands her or his illness affects the course of the affliction itself i want to bring narrative forward as a tool in medicine give it a theoretical dignity i mean that, that it's it's sort of the same thing about being uncomfortable and being comfortable with not knowing the answer but listening to the story, because it's not Absolutely. even a question. It's listening to the story, and do you? That's right. Does that does that feel like what you write and what you think about when you and when you teach these psychiatry students? Is that all of a piece? That, that idea of being comfortable yeah, with I the mysterious. Th that's right. The, the, they're actually doctors, not psychiatry students. So they huh. are already psychiatrists, but they're you know at the in their residency. And, um, of course, the psychiatrists, I have to say, the ones that come to my class, this is not a required class. It's called a seminar in narrative psychiatry. So we do read literature, and then we frame the text that we read in terms of psychiatric practice. And we do talk a lot about um, narrative as you know, the unfolding or the dynamic, that means, you know, the moving aspects of psychiatric illness. 
And they seem to just really love it. And I have them write to. I have them respond uh, to texts. So it's a workshop of sorts, but it's always connected to what they do as doctors. And narrative was long a part of especially psychiatry because the case study was central to um, the practice of medicine in general, but psychiatry in particular. And the loss of the case study, which is the story of a patient, uh, I think is a big loss in medicine. And there are a number of people uh, who are working to restore this to medicine. Rita Sharon, who's head of the Narrative Medicine Department at Columbia, uh, is certainly one of them, a primary example. But the medical humanities have been around for a long time, and there's a lot of good work being done in it. So I think the lacuna, if you will, that has been felt, uh, and the fact that what they call now the biomedical model or a kind of machine model of the person. You know, you address just a particular part, you know, that's wrong in the body of a person and you try to fix it, uh, is an inadequate model. So, so we try to talk about all of this and read literature and think about the stories of patients and the stories of the doctors who are treating the patients, which is also important. You can't ignore that every doctor also has a story. Well, let's hope we adopt that same notion in our, in our social and political and cultural life, because it would make the world a little more easy to discuss, perhaps, if nothing else. Yeah. Well, we can keep fighting for it, can't we? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. That was great. I really appreciate you talking to me. Well, I appreciate your talking to me, and it was a pleasure. That was the novelist, scholar, and teacher, Siri Hustvet. She'll be speaking with journalist Lauren DeGraff, the Seattle First Baptist Church, Monday, March 25th, 2019. At length is supported this season by Town Hall. I'm grateful that I get a chance to talk to all these great scholars and thinkers who come through Seattle. You can find a shorter version of this interview, along with some other interviews my colleagues are doing at Town Hall with some of the writers and authors who are coming. Just listen for In the Moment, wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like this podcast, leave a review, won't you, at Apple, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Tell your friends. That would be great. Thanks again for listening to At Length.